Dr. Jean Anderson is here. Um, a lot of the things I didn't talk about in the case discussion was deliberate because I knew that Dr. Anderson was coming in. And it has to do with um, what, is a, what are good choices for antiretroviral therapy in women who are pregnant or who are planning to become pregnant or of childbearing years where they may become pregnant. And a lot of this has um, uh, really raised its head with the Dalyutegravir story that everybody knows about, uh, but the best person on earth to bring us an update on what the current status is is Gene Anderson, who's a professor of OBGYN at Hopkins, and we're very pleased to have her here, and she's going to provide all kinds of updates on this. So welcome, Gene. Thanks, Mike, and I want to thank the uh, organizers of this conference for inviting me to talk about pregnancy because I think we get increasing uh, numbers of questions uh, about this. This is my disclosure. And what I want to talk about a little bit first is just the current state of perinatal transmission of HIV in infection in this country because we're getting close to being able to say that we have eliminated perinatal transmission. I want to go over the current recommendations for the use of ART in pregnant women and uh, a few comments about the use of PrEP in pregnancy and breastfeeding. So I have three um, audience response questions. I have them all at the beginning. Um, I will cover all of the answers um, in the course of this uh, this talk, so I'm not going to go over the answers in depth, but let me ask you uh, to, uh, to answer. So the first is a 24-year-old woman at seven weeks gestation who presents on dolutegravir, 3TC, and abacavir. CD4 count is 430. Her viral load is undetectable. She's tolerating this regimen well. After appropriate counseling, which of the following is the most appropriate management? A, continue her current regimen. B, stop all uh, antiretrovirals until the second trimester and then restart her current regimen. Three, uh, or C, change to Bictarvi. Um, D, change to, to Elvotegravir, COBE, FTC, and TDF. So let me ask you to, to vote. Okay, so 70% of you say continue her current regimen, which I'm going to talk about, but I think that that's the correct answer currently, and we'll go over that a little bit later. So let me go to the second question. A 36-year-old woman who presents a little later in pregnancy at 24 weeks with a new diagnosis of HIV. Her CD4 counts 246. Viral load is 21,000 copies. She's also hepatitis B surface antigen positive. So which would be the most appropriate regimen to start? Um, a, Elvitegravir, COBE, FTC, and TDF. B, Dalutegravir, ABC, and 3TC. C, Dalutegravir plus uh, TDF uh, uh, in combination with FTC, 
and D, uh, the big Tegravir regimen. So please vote on that. Somebody's been reading up on this on this topic. Um, C is is the uh, preferred regimen. Again, I'm going to talk about this. So one more, and then we're going to go into the to the meat of this talk. So this is a 34-year-old woman in her second pregnancy. She delivered her first infant in Zambia four years ago. Did not breastfeed because of her HIV diagnosis. But she states she never bonded with her son, and she intends to breastfeed with this pregnancy. Um, she's currently on uh, TDF, FTC, and boosted atazanavir. So which of the following should you consider? A, tell her she can't breastfeed and threaten to call Child Protective Services. B, uh, counsel that breastfeeding is not recommended, offer only formula as an option. C, discuss the importance of continuous viral suppression throughout pregnancy and breastfeeding. And D, recommend that breast milk be mixed with formula to reduce risk. Okay, and I agree with the majority of you. We'll go over that a little bit at the end. I'm glad none of you picked A, though um, I will say that uh, people at my institution and other institutions I know have, would have chosen that in some cases. And I think um, this is one of the really evolving areas in terms of management in pregnancy in the postpartum period. So let me get to the meat of, of um, this talk, and I'm very aware that I'm the last thing standing between you and lunch, so I want to go through this um, fairly quickly. Um, so this is uh, data from 2017 looking at sort of the arc of the epidemic in pregnancy and exposed infants um, since, uh, since the, the early 80s. And we see that HIV-infected pregnant women have increased uh, we see that there was a, a steady increase in HIV-infected and exposed infants until uh, the, the landmark study, 076, and the, the uh, rapid translation to public health, health practice of zidovudine in uh, 1994. I will mention that um, a recent analysis from the CDC with Steve Nesham's group um, estimates that the current annual number of pregnant women with H living with HIV is probably lower than this uh, slide shows. It's about, probably about 5,000 a year. And that's based on some fairly uh, sophisticated calculations, but they estimate that there's been a 10% reduction in childbearing women living with HIV but at the same time, a 7% increase in those women having children. Um, the most recent statistics in terms of 
perinatal infections are from 2016. There were only 44 cases in the U.S. And so we, which is uh, 1.2 per 100,000. So we're really reaching a point of where we can talk about elimination of mother-to-child transmission rather than simply prevention. And this is, uh, looks at the change in percent um, transmission in, in high-income countries over time. And what you see is that there was a huge drop-off of by about two-thirds in the uh, ZDV-only era, the prophylaxis era, era. But then as we got com into combination therapy and better and better combination therapies, it continued to, to decline. So I tell my patients now that if they are on an effective regimen, they maintain viral suppression, that their risk of transmission should be significantly less, actually, than 1%. In the UK, the most recent data was 0.3%. Uh, the US, we're not doing quite as well as 0.9% overall, and that's estimated from 2016. So um, why aren't we perfect? And I think all of us are, are familiar with ARV cascades, HIV cascades, and the same thing occurs in pregnancy. So if you look at this table and you look at the factors on the left-hand column, uh, these are some of the places that we, we may fall down. And the second column is those infants who are exposed to HIV but are uninfected. The third column is HIV-infected uh, infants. And what you can see is that at, in each of those columns, with each of those factors, you can see where there were missed opportunities. Uh, there were more of the HIV-infected infants uh, where their mothers did not have adequate prenatal care. Uh, there were fewer HIV-infected infants who were exposed to antenatal antiretroviral therapy or intrapartum antiretroviral therapy. Um, I'll mention elective C-section later, but that is, continues to be a tool in cases where uh, we are unable to reach uh, undetectable levels. So fewer of the HIV-infected uh, infants were delivered by C-section. Um, a, a fairly significant drop-off in the ones uh, who were infected who actually received neonatal antiretroviral uh, prophylaxis. More were breastfed. And then um, only about 50% of the women who went on to deliver infected infants were diagnosed with HIV before pregnancy. Um, more were diagnosed after pregnancy. And, and HIV testing, even though it's been recommended throughout uh, for many years now in terms of pregnancy, is, um, is still, uh, we're still not where we should be. And it hasn't budged much from about 70% or 76% since 2006. Um, one other thing I would mention is that it's estimated that about somewhere between 7 to 18% of infants born uh, with uh, perinatally acquired HIV infection were born to women with acute HIV uh, in pregnancy. I'll mention a little bit more about that. So let me move on to, uh, to the, the talk about to talk about medications. And what I'm going to be presenting you is uh, from the perinatal guidelines um, 
group. It is, uh, I'm gonna present brand new updates which will be published within the next couple of weeks and I've received permission to present them here. Um, all of these, uh, as with all of the, the HIV guidelines groups, there is a rating screen, uh, scheme for recommendations um, that includes both the strength of recommendation and then the quality of evidence. So first of all, general principles uh, really haven't changed much. ART is recommended for all pregnant women to prevent perinatal transmission, uh, as well as to optimize the health of the mother. That seems obvious, but it wasn't always obvious. But we know that perinatal transmission uh, is directly related to viral load. Uh, that an undetectable viral load at the time of delivery uh, in uh, the, the uh, collaborative from the UK and Ireland was associated with a 0.09% risk of transmission. We also know that early initiation of ART increases viral suppression uh, by the time of delivery and it further decreases risk of transmission. And so from the French perinatal cohort, um, they had no transmissions uh, in, um, uh, with a non-detectable viral load at delivery. Um, they had, uh, or, or with preconception uh, ART, they had a, and then it started going up trimester by trimester. And so this is actually somewhat of a change over the years in the uh, recommendations concerning treatment in pregnancy where we used to say, well, let's wait till after the first trimester. Now it is uh, similar to treatment with adults. It start uh, as early as possible. Um, it, drug resistance testing is recommended in pregnancy, but it should not delay starting therapy because you can change after that. And then we know that, um, uh, um, was thinking about the discussion related to elite controllers uh, and pregnancy, we know that elite controllers, uh, that we know that ART works in other ways besides just lowering viral load. There's good evidence that it works in terms of both pre and post expo exposure prophylaxis to the fetus. So it is uh, definitely recommended even in the setting of elite controllers. Um, the choice of ART in pregnancy is really informed by the current guidelines for adult, uh, but there are special considerations in pregnancy. There's the issue of safety in terms of uh, birth defects or other adverse pregnancy outcomes, whether that be preterm labor or uh, in a growth restriction in the fetus. Then there's the availability of pregnancy pregnancy-specific pharmacokinetic data, uh, which we, we don't have for the newer drugs, but that evolves over time. And thirdly, then there may be maternal factors, uh, nausea, vomiting, and early pregnancy, comorbid conditions. In general, uh, women who become pregnant in ART should continue their regimen um, during pregnancy, uh, provided that it's safe and effective and it's well-tolerated. So the, the exception is some of the older drugs, and in particular, a, a good example is D4T and DDI, which are not recommended in, uh, in pregnancy because of toxicity. So if 
somebody does happen to come in in one of those old regimens, that should be switched. And then I'm gonna say a little bit more about some of the regimens where we have PK concerns. Um, this is from the HIV outpatient study, um, 2005 through 2013, um, where 28% of women had uh, viral loads over than 500, greater than 500 at the end of pregnancy. And so there are a lot of things to, to think about when someone comes in and has a detectable viral load. Adherence is, is um, number one. Uh, and we, we know that from a variety of data that adherence may be less in pregnancy. Um, you have to think about drug interactions, food requirements, um, treatment interruption, as I, as I mentioned, is not recommended at this time. Uh, somebody who comes in and has a high viral load may simply have an inadequate time on, on antiretroviral therapy. And then resistance, and we are seeing more and more perinatally infected young women who are now uh, who are now pregnant, and they've often they've been exposed to AZT alone as as infants, and they've been exposed often to regimens which are are uh, no longer considered uh, adequate, and so may have a lot of resistance. And we also see heavily treatment experienced adults. And then I mentioned acute infection. I want to say just a little bit more about that. We know that acute infection is associated with a higher viral load uh, and, and diagnosis may be missed. Um, it is uh, felt to represent possibly a significant proportion of residual perinatal transmission in the US. And so it's important for clinicians who are caring for pregnant women to maintain a high level of suspicion uh, and uh, if there is suspicion to, to very quickly get a plasma HIV RNA level. And it's also why we recommend um, uh, almost everywhere across the U.S. that third trimester screening be repeated. Now let me turn to uh, one of the hot ticket items, which is the issue of integrase inhibitors and neural tube defects. Um, before I, I mention that, I want to mention um, you know, if we were here um, 10 years ago, we'd be saying concerns about efavirenz. And for a long time, uh, we said, don't use efavirenz in pregnancy. In fact, don't use it in women who might become pregnant. And then what happened is, is we had um, uh, B plus in uh, low resource areas where efavirenz was part of the regular regimen. And we began to see that it wasn't the problem that we thought it was initially. This is data uh, from Uganda, um, also comparing with data, data from Botswana. And this was a, a, a birth defect surveillance study looking at almost seven, 70,000 births. Uh, this was uh, in women who were on TDF, 3TC, and efavirenz. There was no dilutegravir in the country yet. And you can see that the, if you looked at the neural tube defect percentage births to HIV-negative women and to HIV-positive women who were on efavirenz, it was actually lower uh, in, uh, uh, in, the, in the women who were on um, who were HIV positive, though not statistically so. And then the arrow pointing down is to the Botswana data, again with efavirenz. 
So I think what that's um, caused us to do is to be very cautious about interpreting data in pregnancy, um, and, and often based on smaller numbers or low risk, because I think that for, uh, for many years we were doing pregnant women or women who might become pregnant a disservice. Now this is a recent uh, publication of a Merck review uh, of Raltegravir-exposed pregnancies. This was uh, based on almost 2,500 women, um, and it came from not only the Merck safety database, but also UK and Ireland and the French cohort. Um, and uh, the bottom line, in prospective uh, cases of 1,900, uh, there were no neurotube defects. And I'm gonna skip over the retrospective data simply because we don't have a denominator we know that there are biases with retrospective uh, reporting of cases, um, but nevertheless, there were four NTD cases, um, only one with periconceptual uh, exposure. And then uh, from the national surveillance of uh, HIV uh, in pregnancy uh, and childhood, uh, they also reported on 33 Elvitegravir exposures 26 of which were preconception and found no birth defects. Um, the big concern that has been raised has been in dolutegravir, and this was all based uh, from uh, a, a little over a year ago, an unplanned interim analysis of an observational study in Botswana. Um, and they found unexpectedly four cases of neural tube defects in dolutegravir-exposed infants for uh, a prevalence of, uh, or an instance of 0.94%. Um, and then they did a further update in July of this year, which lowered the number, but still was a little higher than baseline. Um, it, it, when they looked at when uh, the, the risk according to when dilutegravir was started, um, it was uh, entirely uh, based on preconception uh, so, or at the time of conception exposures. So, the, the current um, evolution, and I'm going to show you some, um, so you show you some data, is still that dolutegravir is a preferred integrase inhibitor for ART-naive women, irrespective of trimester. Um, so I think the big concern that a lot of people have had is what if a woman comes in the first trimester and she's on dolutegravir? Um, the, the current recommendation is you counsel her. You, you, this should be a joint uh, decision making with the woman herself. And you talk with her about what we know, what we don't know. Um, but in the, the reason that the guidelines committee has come down on the side of uh, recommendation uh, recommending continuing dilutegravir is first of all, if, if there was a neural tube defect, um, it, it may have already occurred. The neural tube closes at about six weeks of gestation, and most women do not um, present till after that. So the additional risk may be very low depending on their gestational age. There is a background risk of neural tube defect, which is about 0.06% in the U.S. That's in uh, the general population. And again, the concern that changes in uh, ART, even in the first trimester, may increase risk of rebound. 
And Dalutegavir-based uh, uh, regimen is recommended in the setting of acute HIV in pregnancy. It's considered an alternative agent for women trying to conceive. Um, it, this is data from the Antiretroviral Pregnancy Registry looking at um, integrase inhibitor exposure and neurotube defects. And um, I, I would encourage all of you who care for pregnant women to be reporting prospectively, if possible, to the APR, um, because this, again, is going to be a less biased, uh, uh, pr produce less biased information at the end of, of therapy, uh, at the end of pregnancy. So with um, prospective analysis, you register pregnant women um, without identifiers um, before the pregnancy outcome is known. And then you have uh, data that is, is more reasonably unbiased. So this was presented in CROI last year and basically uh, looking specifically at integrase inhibitors, um, looking uh, at pericondition conception first trimester, second and third trimester. In the table, the um, defects noted are all defects. And I would remind you um, that there is a background risk of major defects in the general population that's as high as 2 to 3 percent. Um, so you have to factor that in. Uh, but the bottom line in this, um, in this uh, look back at prospective data from the APR. There were no neurotube defects. There were two other CNS defects, uh, both in dolutegravir. Now, since then, um, there's been a, uh, an update. There's now about 725 women who've had periconception exposure to, exposure to dolutegravir. There have been two neurotube defects, one in dolutegravir and one in elvitegravir. Um, but this is something we're continuing to watch, and I think it's really a, uh, an issue of really weighing out the risks versus the benefits with each individual uh, patient and, and jointly decision. But and I think in most cases, it will be a continuation of dilutegravir. The other uh, situation is women who present in late pregnancy and the role of integrase inhibitors. And we know that there's a rapid uh, viral decay after initiation, that there's certainly a shorter time to viral suppression in the setting of acute infection. This is from the general population, not in pregnancy. So the use of integrase inhibitors has been suggested in late pregnancy in several circumstances. One women who present late and not on ART, especially if they have a high viral load. Two, as part of a, a new regimen in women on a failing regimen after reviewing their treatment history resistance testing. And third, as intensification, where you just add uh, uh, the integrase inhibitor to an existing regimen that's failing. And I think that in the first two cases, this is very reasonable. The concern in the third case is that you um, may simply be um, uh, losing further uh, effectiveness of regimen by adding a single, uh, a single drug. And the, I want to point out that the efficacy and safety of this approach has not been evaluated, and this is not recommended. Now, we do have a little bit more data recently from CROI about the use of integrase inhibitors in this situation. This was a study uh, reported by Mark Morochnik. 
um, looking at, it was a randomized clinical trial in several um, uh, continents uh, for altegravir plus uh, two NNRTIs versus efavirenz plus two, NN, uh, two NRTIs and uh, in women who presented relatively late in uh, pregnancy. And bottom line is that uh, the rautegravir regimen versus efavirenz regimen, um, they were more likely to achieve uh, viral suppression by delivery, and they had a faster decline. And similarly, in the Dolphin II study, um, also efavirenz uh, versus dolutegravir. Uh, this was in Kampala and Cape Town uh, with the primary endpoint at viral suppression and uh, similar studies at, uh, at every CD4 strata and at viral load strata. So I would point out that obviously the higher the viral load, the less likely to achieve suppression, but still dolutegravir was superior to efavirenz. Um, briefly, pharmacokinetics in pregnancy, we, we now have data that specifically with cobacistat-boosted regimens, and you see uh, here listed that there may be uh, lower drug levels in the second and particularly in the third trimester. This is probably because of increased uh, plasma volume, increased renal clearance, um, as well as uh, changes in enzymatic uh, metabolism through the liver. Um, but it, it's, it's been concerning because with uh, Elvitegravir-Cobi regimens, only 74% of women maintain viral suppression at delivery. Um, some similar data with Darunavir, and I would point out that Darunavir in uh, once-a-day dosing is not recommended in pregnancy. Um, and then atazanavir, we think, is, is going to be uh, similar. So um, this is just the current, this is taken uh, from the, the current um, uh, perinatal guidelines. These, this has not changed. I would point out that this is initial regimens for naive women. And so they're divided into preferred, alternative, insufficient data, and do not use. And the way this works is for it to make into the preferred status, there has to be good efficacy data, um, tolerability data uh, in adults, and then safety data in pregnancy and available PK data in pregnancy. So what you will see is that a, a drug that may be currently in the insufficient data category over time will march through, become alternative, and, and ultimately may be preferred. Um, this is, uh, I'm, I'm not going to spend any time. These will be available in your webcast. This is part of the new uh, or the updated guidelines, and I realize you can't see this very well. But I would, this is a, 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 a fairly new table in the perinatal guidelines and is uh, really, I think, been helpful and is responsive to a lot of the, the, the questions and confusion surrounding some of the previous iterations, and this basically looks at all the drugs, including fixed-dose uh, combinations, uh, and at the different scenarios, whether somebody comes uh, is naive, somebody comes in and is on a regimen that's working or one that's not working, 
um, or they uh, have been on a regimen before, or they are uh, trying to conceive. So um, the, the highlighted areas are simply the ones related to, uh, uh, specifically to dolutegravir, and also to TAF. I would mention that TAF is currently, we have listed as insufficient data. We have a lot more data in pregnancy on TDF, I fully expect that we will get more data and that TAF will march through. Uh, but I want to I mention that, that the um, absence of data does not equate to the presence of risks. So that's why you'll see in some of these where we don't have a lot of data, but if they come in on that regimen, it's, you're better off continuing. And this is just a continuation of, of those tables. Um, I will mention that currently there is, are no data on two drug regimens in pregnancy, and these are not currently recommended. I want to say a little bit uh, finally about uh, breastfeeding. Um, breastfeeding is not recommended still in the U.S. However, um, we are trying to take a much more harm reduction approach. Um, and why is it not recommended? Well, I think there are still concerns that there may be um, uh, either uh, toxicity issues or that it may not completely um, protect against breastfeeding. And U equals U, where it comes to breastfeeding, is, remains an area of some uncertainty. In the PROMISE study, there were actually two postnatal transmissions in breastfeeding women who had undetectable uh, HIV RNA. So, and in this country, we have, in general, safe and effective alterna alternatives. Um, but there are many reasons women might want to breastfeed, um, and we know that there are different areas in this country that are, uh, that are more similar to uh, low-resource areas than we would like to think. Um, sometimes it's disclosure issues, and we are seeing an increasing number of immigrants uh, living with HIV where the stigma is great and their cultural expectations are to breastfeed. So I think non-judgmental counseling is key. I'm not going to go over these harm reduction measures, but would say the most important thing is that she maintain uh, an effective treatment, that she has uh, viral suppression throughout pregnancy and breastfeeding. And then um, finally, I want to mention that breast uh, prep in is not contraindicated in pregnancy or breastfeeding. There's going to be a new uh, updated guidelines for prep, and I think this is going to be made much uh, clearer. Um, if if a woman who has a partner who has HIV who has sustained viral load suppression is at effectively no risk for sexual acquisition. Um, but I think there's always some, some question. I will mention that TAF at uh, FTC is not recommended at this time. Um, simply don't have the data. And then the final point is there are, is great concern about uh, retention in care postpartum period. In various studies, only about a third of postpartum women with HIV are retained in care. Um, the data on this slide is from South Africa, but shows that 
um, that over time uh, in the postpartum period in women who were born with, a, I mean, who were delivered with viral suppression, um, tend that uh, adherence may fall off. So in summary, um, elimination of perinatal transmission is within reach, but there remain missed opportunities to identify HIV in pregnant women and treat them appropriately. Again, viral load suppression is the strongest predictor of prevention of transmission. Dalutegravir is the preferred or a preferred integrase inhibitor for ART-naive women, irrespective of tri trimester. There may be a role of integrase inhibitors in women who present late pregnancy to lower the viral load more rapidly. Um, keep in mind the PK concerns, particularly in later pregnancy with certain agents, and pay attention to linkage, engagement, and retention in care in the postpartum period. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks for questions. Thanks, Jean. Um, let me kick it off. Uh, they've got several questions on cards, but one of the thoughts um, is about the use of folate. And so if you had a person on dolutegravir and they wanted to stay on, they were contemplating pregnancy, wanted to stay on dolutegravir, would it be wise to just give some supplemental folate just for fun? So I, I think that that all women in, in pregnancy should be on, on folic acid supplementation, and, and primarily in the, the preconception period is the most important. We don't have any data yet and, and that whether or not that might reduce risk if this risk, as we get more numbers, is real. In fact, there's some, some uh, early data that it, this might not be a folate-dependent um, uh, issue. Right, there was a, one article in AIDS about over the summer that used zebrafish and all kinds of other things to show that there was a competition of binding on the folate receptor and that, that they purported might be an issue. But I didn't see any harm in doing it. So, no, I yeah. don't think there's any harm. Okay. I just don't know if it helps. And so to that matter, the, one of the first questions here is you have a woman who comes to you and is planning to get pregnant and she's on dolutegravir. You sort of address this. Would you continue or find something else? Well, I think the first thing is is to really counsel her about uh, about what the different options are. And I mean, the, the most important thing is that she maintain viral suppression. It is an alternative, which means that we feel comfortable enough with continuing it that it's not a deal breaker. So I think it's really a discussion. It's looking at what her options are based on her treatment history, resistance profile, uh, you know, her her adherence issues. So um, I think it, it could be continued. With regard to reltegravir, um, there's an option to use it once daily at a higher dose. And I, the question would be concerned about second and third trimester. Are there recommendations about once daily versus twice daily? Right now, we, we don't have any data in terms of PK data. So I think that would be the, the big concern. So I would, I would continue at the current time with uh, twice daily reltegravir. Okay. Um, are there any risks to infants postpartum, obviously, um, in terms of if they were exposed to some tenofovir uh, regarding fracture risk, or is there an inf interference with bone development, uh, concerns like that? 
I think that, you know, that, that has been a, a, an issue that has been raised, and there's been some mixed data on it. I think a lot of the data that's coming out now is, is pretty reassuring in terms of, of bone health with uh, tenofovir. This is a little bit um, uh, probably real world, that you have a woman who's pregnant, and she has an exposure to HIV, and you want to use post-exposure prophylaxis. What might you choose in that setting? So she's, um, she could either be pregnant or she's breastfeeding, whatever the case is. Are, are there particular regimens that you might avoid, or does it matter? I, I, I think at this point I would go with the, with the guidelines. My, always my answer is when, when there's something that's a little bit out of, out of the ordinary is, first of all, look at what would you do if, if, forget the pregnancy, and then you kind of back up from there. And I think at this point, I would go with uh, where the guidelines are in terms of okay. pepper prep. When you consider drugs for um, use in pregnancy, uh, how much of the consideration, beyond, you have tolerability and all that, but how about placental transfer of the agent? Is that uh, something that's premium, or does that just take a back seat? How do you all, when you do some of the guidelines, consider that? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think that that's part of the, the data that enters into uh, the, the recommendations. I mean, PIs don't have uh, great placental passage. I think, again, the most important thing is viral load suppression. Um, but, but we do have data that's usually part of the PK profile that's, that's looked at prior to um, drugs sort of marching through. But the, the most important thing, I think, is viral load suppression. Okay. And the, we're going to have an upcoming talk about PrEP, and you touched on it. But um, in the future, sort of looking down the road, um, if there's going to be, say, an injectable cabotegravir type of thing. Um, obviously, we want to apply all PrEP to women uh, who are at risk. Uh, do you have uh, opinion about using a drug like cabotegravir if she were to become pregnant while on cabotegravir, anything? How, how do you suggest we move forward in the future with these sort of conundrums? Yeah. I yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, there's no, no roadmap for a lot of these yeah. things. <laughs> I think, again, when we don't have data, it doesn't mean, you know, I, I would caution people against just saying, okay, we stop everything because you're, you're so afraid of what, what might happen. I think that in, in that situation, if somebody got pregnant, I would probably switch them to TDF, TTC, um, but uh, until we have more data in pregnancy. Right, and I'll let Steve have the last question. So, so uh, if I understand the perinatal guidelines now, so, so if a woman is trying to conceive, then raltegravir would be the preferred integrase inhibitor. I wanted to ask about a different setting, and that is inconsistent use of birth control, someone who's sexually active, so where there's a higher risk of unintended pregnancy. How would you handle that? Well, it, I think, you know, one of the points I would make is that all of us who are seeing uh, women of childbearing age should be assessing periodically where they are with their desires for, for getting pregnant and their timing. Um, and so that if they, if they don't want to get pregnant, they should be on adequate contraception. I think that if they are um, on hormonal therapy, there are drug interactions with certain of the antiretroviral uh, agents. 
a lot of those are almost all of those that I'm aware of with maybe one or two exceptions are based on PK data. They're not necessarily documented in, uh, in uh, clinical um, studies. Um, uh, an exception is a Favarin's containing regimens and uh, the uh, contraceptive implant where there have been some uh, actual concerns about decreased effectiveness. Um, I don't know if that, does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, I think I would, again, I would try to make the decision that's going to be best for the woman with, with her input. And for many women, the, the issue of convenience uh, related to uh, dosing or side effects, uh, you know, may outweigh some of the other, some of the other concerns. Great. Thank you very much. Very informative and fast-moving field. <laughs>